So there's a couple movies from the 90s, and now I realize there are people in this room that weren't even born yet. But uh, there are a couple movies from the 90s that had a couple men in them, and I'm going to give you a few descriptive words, and I want to see if you can tell me what the names of these two movies were. Uh, complaining, negativity, intolerance, uncompromising, griping, fussing, grumpy old men, grumpiness. Uh, these magnetic characters, right? Uh, grumpy old men, and the second one was grumpier old men. And uh, one of the reasons those movies were so well received was, as Hollywood does well, they allowed us to witness these main characters who were portrayed by Walter Matthau and John Lemon get away with exaggerated attitudes and behaviors on the premise of grumpiness. I mean, it was it, it, funny, funny movies, lots of comedy, um, and they were very popular. But if we were to practice their behavior today in real life, um, people wouldn't really want to be around us, right? I mean, we, we laugh at that, etc. But but in reality, no one likes to spend time with a complainer or a grumbler or a grumpy old man or a grumpy old woman. Now, I think you can be any age and be considered a grumpy old man or a grumpy old woman, personally. Um, studies have shown that there are few things that are more detrimental to our health than a bad attitude. Uh, literally, bad attitudes um, begin with our mindset. And if our perspective is stuck in the muck of negativity, then our body, our behaviors, our mental, our emotional, and even our physical health can follow suit. Uh, it, it, it affects who we are and, and how we feel. Um, last week, we looked at the definition of gratitude and what that can look like in our life. And this morning, we're, we're looking at the opposite of gratitude, uh, an enemy of gratitude, and that's ingratitude. Now, Webster defines ingratitude as the failure or refusal to acknowledge receipt of something good from another. The, thought, the forgetfulness of or poor return of kindness. Um, ingratitude is a choice that we make not to recognize good or kindness in our life that has been given to us. Um, it's the choice to take on the mindset and the spirit of the grumpy old men. And the Bible is filled with situations originating from an in, ingracious heart. Many of the most disheartening events in the Bible begin with the spirit of ingratitude. Uh, you likely know about Cain killing his brother. Where, how, how did he get to that place? Well, both brothers offered a sacrifice to God, and, and Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. Cain's was not. Um, Cain's heart wasn't in the right place. See, it wasn't the sacrifice that God was after. It wasn't the things or the parts of the sacrifice. It was the heart behind the giving of his sacrifice. His sacrifice was produced out of selfishness and a lack of faith. He held things back. Both of those things are sins that are formed from an ungrateful heart. And God rejected the offering. And so his heart kept pulling his ungrateful spirit along. And instead of humbling himself and asking God what he needed to do uh, to correct the situation, he stewed in his anger and his answer to his wounded pride was to murder his brother. 
King David is another example. King David lived and was given a blessed life. He was, he was considered a man after God's own heart. He was the apple of God's eye. The Lord gave him a flourishing kingdom, a successful career as a king, a wife who loved him, a healthy family, well-being, provision, and it goes on and on and on. But the moment his gaze shifted away from God and onto something that he couldn't have, he became ungrateful. And in turn, his ungrateful spirit led to a great sin. Adultery first and then, and then murder. Even after God's forgiveness, God forgave him. He repented. Uh, the remainder of his reign was stained. There was a scar that he had. Uh, his life was scarred by his sin. All because, of, because his focus shifted from the Lord's grace or caress in his life forgetting all for which he had to be grateful for. And I would argue that this slippery slope of their sins originated from the sin of ingratitude. And ingratitude has become an acceptable sin in our culture today. Uh, one that we all commit so often that we don't even recognize it as sin. Early philosophers understood what today's science has proven, that gratitude is a wellspring of life. A gratitude's nemesis, ingratitude, begins in small ways and is often masked by emotions, thoughts, justifications, and behaviors, making the spirit of ungratefulness a challenge to even identify. Again, we just get so used to seeing it in other people's lives and in our own life that we don't even notice that we are being ungrateful. And, and though it may be one of the least apparent sins, it drives a costly price. I think the greatest example of this comes from the Old Testament and, and Israel's attitudes in the earliest days after they exited Egypt. So if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. It's the second book of the Old Testament. And, and I'm not going to read it all. Um, basically, the, the chapter 16 is, is when God is, God's providing for the people of Israel. They're out in the desert, and, and they're going to be there a long time. 40 years. Could you imagine 40 years wandering around the plains of Wyoming with just what you're able to carry and drag on carts with oxen, um, herding sheep. Uh, I mean, in verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. The people were hungry, and, and they're, they're worried. What, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? Uh, on the sixth day, they are to prepare what, what uh, let's see, in this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Okay, so... There's a test within this provision. I think that's true for all of us. I think when, when God uh, provides for us, um, it is as such a test. Are, are we going to trust him or not? Are we going to listen? On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on either day. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. 
God heard him. And he said, okay, here we go. Who, who are we that you should grumble against us? I mean, Moses, and, Moses is trying to get the, the beef off of him because really it isn't against him. It's against God. God's the one that took them out of Egypt. God's the one that has them there. God's the one that's going before them by day in, in a pillar of cloud and by night a pillar of fire. I mean, if that doesn't say I'm with you, I am here, what does? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So after 45 days of travel, this is right at the start. Uh, Israel's resources are beginning to run out. They, God gave them commands to take a bunch of stuff from Egypt when they left. In fact, the Egyptians were handing them stuff. Here, take this, take this, take this. And we're past the miracle of the Dead Sea. Red Sea. Two different seas, sorry. They just walked across on dry land. God provided for them. He, he, he provided safety and security for them. Uh, he destroyed much of Egypt's army. And they're being now overcome by their fear of hunger. And their focus is shifting from the Lord to their stomachs. And, and it's amazing to me that they say what they do. Uh, look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 16 of Exodus. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. I would rather be dead than out here in this situation that I'm in. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I wonder if those words ever went through their mind as they sat around those pots as slaves in Egypt. Oh, this is so much better than anything else we could ever be a part of. Our, our needs are being met. That's not. They were weeping and crying for God to, 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 to get them out of there, to save them. And God does. So the Lord, being gentle with these spiritual infants that they are, he hears their grumble and graciously provides for his children by sending them quail from the sky and birthing manna from the ground. This is, like, this is a creative act. God is creating quail and creating manna before their very eyes. Now, surely we don't wonder that God didn't see this coming, right? God knew... That, God put them in the desert. He, he, he knows how long he's going to leave them there. And, and if he's going to leave them there for 40 years, he's going to have to provide for them, right? How often do we question God? And, we, and, and for some reason, we think that the thing that we're experiencing is a shock to God, that he didn't see this coming. Absolutely, he saw this coming. He's already been preparing the way before us. Part of that is a test. Part of that is to show how faithful he is in providing for us in the midst of that thing. We just need to trust him. We just need to trust him. We just need to trust him. Moses takes then this moment as a teaching opportunity. I mean, Moses doesn't like to be the guy that people come to grumble to. I mean, I'm sure that they're 
you know, if, he, if they had cell phones in his day, his phone would be blowing up all day long of complaints. Um, he takes this moment to address these toxic attitudes. In fact, he, basically he's saying, look, this attitude, this, this complaining amongst yourselves, this underlying murmuring is not against me or Aaron. Your words are against the Lord. Is this who we are? Are we people that complain and whine and cry to the God that, that God has left us when God has done everything but that? And are we, those who are hearing my words today, are we people that would grumble against the Lord's provisions? Well, because, because we become what we behold. We, we become what we, we behold. Moses understood what the people did not yet understand, that we become what we behold. If we behold anger, we become angry people. If, if we behold envy, we will constantly be leaning into jealousy. If, if we harbor frustration, we transform into a quarrelsome person whose arguments keep us from getting along with others. Have you ever been working on a project and you were frustrated to begin with and it's not going quite the way you thought it should? What does that do to you? Does it make you, make you say things you shouldn't? Does it make you throw things? Does it make you break things? Does it make you get a bigger hammer? Think about times like that and think about other times where you're working on a project and, and you've got time. There's no rush. It doesn't matter when this is done. And, 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 and instead, of, instead of meeting it with frustration, you meet it as a challenge. I mean, you're, you're searching YouTube videos and you're looking to how, to how do I access this and how do I fix this. Usually, I'm kind of the in a hurry, bigger hammer, bigger screwdriver, just pry harder, it'll come. And then I end up breaking it. And then I watch a YouTube video and I go, I wish I would have watched this five minutes ago before I broke that thing off now that I got to go buy that thing before I can fix the thing that I was originally attempting to do. You see, we become what we behold. And, and the early church leader, James, understood this as well. And he spoke of it in his letter to the early church. James is, is, is evaluating his congregation, and, and he's finding that his body of believers are beginning to adopt different postures of sin. They're becoming okay with things within their midst. And James urges them, just as Moses did with the Israelites, to guard themselves. You need to be aware of this. James tells his fellow Christ followers, many, many of whom were, were also infants in the faith, that even in the most significant trials, that we should, that we can remain strong with an attitude of Christ. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. I mean, these people know strife. These people know persecution. These people know hard times. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance 
finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. For if they do not persevere, they will become beholden to the sin that is beckoning them. Because if we go forward a few verses in verses 12 through 15, this is what James said. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Tempting and testing are two totally different things. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. We need to shut that off. We need to persevere so that we're not dragged away. I have seen young people, I have seen young adults allow, choose to let their heart get attached to someone who is not a Christ follower, and it just produces hardship. Because our hearts attach hard and strong and, and, we, and, and we think, well, I'll just, I'm going to change this person. But this person, what happens if they don't get changed? There comes a point when you got to make a decision. And that decision really should be, I, I need to break this relationship because it's, it's leading me. It's dragging me in a direction that, that, that I shouldn't be dragged in. And, and it breaks hearts. Desires that tempt us to place faith in any place other than the Lord. For Israel, that was Egypt. Oh, if we were just back in Egypt. (laughs) All of our troubles would be gone, right? Why are you thinking that? It's because their focus is on their immediate hunger or worry or fear. And they are being directed away from the Lord's grace. And they're being led into the darkness or even death. And grumbling and ingratitude are always crouching at our doorstep. Let's let's come back to Israel two years after their initial grumble. And Israel's still a spiritual infant, but now under the guidance and instruction of the law. So now they have actually written guidance And after nearly 800 days in the desert with the daily provisions of manna and quail, Israel should be past a spirit of grumbling, right? They should be in the routine of God providing them having exactly, exactly enough. Not too much, not too little. All those years to see and experience the provision of God. I'm going to pick on Cheryl a little bit this morning. I'm going to throw myself under the bus, too, because every year about this time of the year, the, the, budget, the budget reports come in, and, and I see that minus before the number, and I start worrying, and I start getting concerned, and I start getting anxious. For crying out loud, David, how many years in a row do you have to see the provision of God at the end of a budget season to see that you don't have to worry that he's going to provide? Right? How many years, Cheryl? Next year, my challenge to you is don't fret. Just live the adventure that that this shoebox thing is and see what God's going to do. May we all live that way. Uh, Numbers 
chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Look, he's, he's kind of getting tired of the grumbling. You know, I, God is patient. <laughs> he is, but I, obviously there is a limit. There is a point in time where God recognizes himself that my patience here is not helping the people anymore. He does that perfectly. You know, we, we have... We have those, um, we wrestle with that all the time. Uh, a person comes and they need gas in their car or whatever, and they do it multiple times. And then the question becomes, are we giving them a hand up or are we just giving them a hand out? Are we really helping them? Because we want to really help. We want to really help. So God, his anger was aroused. And it says, then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Teberah, which, uh, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Wait a minute, what's quail? Isn't that a meat? We remember the fish. Oh, you want a different meat. We remember the fish we ate at Egypt at no cost. Uh, your freedom, pain, agony, work, making bricks out of straw. I mean, also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. So it was pretty tasty. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. God provided every day, every day. For 40 years, God provided for them to eat. Quail and manna. Now, I... My wife would admit this. I would probably eat pizza every day all, all the time if I could. I, lo I love pizza. Pepperoni pizza. But, but, you know, I have to think and be real. If I ate pizza every day for 40 years, I might be tempted to, to whine a bit. So, so before we condemn the Israelites for being the way that they were, we need to look at ourselves and say, okay, where would I be? How many days would it take for me to be sick and tired of manna? But here's the thing. My dad, off, my dad always said beggars can't be choosers. If that's the only thing I had to eat, wouldn't it be good if I was grateful that I had that to eat? And that's so hard for us here in America because we don't get it. We don't... Even, even if you struggle to make ends meet, you're not... You're eating something. I, mean, I have family that came over here on a ship from Sweden, and, and one of the reasons why they left, because there was a famine in the land. They were only eating potatoes and barely, hardly any of a potato. They would split a potato four, five, six ways to eat for a day. It's, it's hard. 
It's, it's hard, really, to understand where the Israelites were. Uh, but, but, I mean, God, God was angry with them. And, and Moses is complaining, too. He's like, why do I have to put up with these people? I mean, did number 12, did, or verse 12, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Am I their father? Why, did, why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let my face, let me face my own ruin. I mean, Moses has had it. All that whining and grumbling, even, even though the menu was always the same, Israel, living in the middle of the desert, never had to worry about starving. Never. Every day, they woke up and there was manna. Every evening, there was quail. Every day. They never went without food. The Israelites would accept the food of the Lord graciously, and in time, they began to complain and grumble. And our text says that the Lord's anger burned, and he demonstrated that by burning up the outskirts of the camp. I mean, he didn't just pull his belt off. Right? I mean, we know when a reckoning's coming when that happens. Now, I, I don't ever recall being spanked once. I'm sure I was just that good. <laughs> no, my brothers and sisters, they'll probably be com commenting on this later, um, said that I just was spoiled rotten, and that's probably true, which wasn't necessarily good for me. It's not good for us to be spoiled. So what exactly is grumbling? How many things do you suppose they complained and grumbled about that we aren't told? I bet, I bet Moses had a diary filled with things that they were complaining about. What, what, I mean, what if you sat down and you took out a piece of paper and you just wrote down all the things that you've complained about today? Think about it. Forty years Israel was in the desert. Forty years. And I'm sure Moses had a file of stories around their lack of spiritual maturity. Exodus 17 tells us there were so many arguments among the people that Moses struggled to find the time to lead them. So he appointed elders. He appointed other people to listen to the complaints of the people so that he could actually lead. It seems Moses deliberately chose to leave most of the complaining and grumbling out of the book of Exodus. I mean, he probably would have been writing and writing and writing and writing forever. However, in the few stories recorded twice, Moses highlights the grumbling nature of the Israelites. This sly grumble. Sly. It's sly. This sly grumble, often justified by its beholders, was destroying God's new nation. And Moses understood it had the potential to destroy God's people in the future. Why? Because as we read in James, an attitude of ingratitude leads to sin. That eventually pulls us so far away from the Lord that we no longer trust him. So some of you might be thinking, why is negativity so bad? Why is complaining so detrimental to our faith? Because it is the antithesis of gratitude. It is the complete opposite. Grumbling is the complete opposite of gratitude. 
To grumble and complain is to reject or neglect the grace of God. Israel's complaining led them to want to return to slavery. That's how far a negative attitude can drag you. Their faithless actions led them to believe that God's provisions weren't enough. They were choosing... They were choosing to be ungrateful for their daily drop from the sky and raise from the ground food. God was creating something out of nothing. Uh, I'm assuming that everybody's Bible study is ahead of ours in in the book of Mark. I think it was chapter, it was uh, lesson seven that we did last week. And uh, Mark recorded the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. And it was interesting how Jesus taught the disciples about that. And, and that that kind of was a direct reference to the manna and the quail. God providing something out of nothing. So the disciples are complaining. They're like, wow, these people are hungry. These people are starving. What should we do? We don't have the money to go, well, wait a minute. You're, you're with the Messiah, Why don't you ask him? Right? Why don't you come to Jesus and say, hey, these people are hungry. Let's feed them. Help us. How are we going to do this? What did they do? They gathered a a few loaves and, and all the rest was created out of nothing. Just, and, and the disciples ask almost as if they think Jesus had no clue that they were all hungry, right? That they were in a place, a remote place where they were going to need something special. Jesus always knows. He always knows. So, Egypt wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt to be fed there And that was to reject God's grace and his offer of salvation because Israel's salvation was dependent upon them trusting God and God providing for them, which is where our salvation is too. I mean, this is the tipping point. Grumbling takes the form of the respectable sins of discontentment, fussiness, gossip, negativity, intolerance, impatience, uncompromising, and unyielding mindsets and behaviors. Grumbling sneaks in and it, it destroys the strongest of believers. It has the power to pull those who were once in awe of the greatness of their salvation far, far away from God into the grips of darkness. In essence, grumbling offers us, offers us a free pass to shift our focus from God's provision and God's grace to the problems in our life. It, it takes our problem at hand, and it turns it into a spiritual issue of the heart, which inevitably eats away at our recognition of God's grace in our life. Israel imagined they would be better off dying as oppressed slaves in Egypt than dying as free people in the desert. However, it's apparent that God, wouldn't, God wasn't going to allow them to die. Not of starvation. Not of their enemies. God protected them. Grumbling has the power to bring us to this place. Ingratitude moves us backward in thinking and ultimately living. 
we stopped living. And, and I wonder, where have you allowed ingratitude to put roots down into your life? This is a question you might just have to ask the people who are around you every day. If you can't see it, I'm pretty sure that all of us have some, some, some roots of ingratitude in our life. Maybe we need to not fear and we need to step out and we need to ask somebody. Maybe it's somebody we're living with. Maybe it's a husband or a wife or a child. But you better be ready to get the answer. A coworker, hey, how do you think, I, how do you think I'm doing? Do you, do, you th- do you think I'm grateful for the things in my life? I mean, we need to know. We need to know. And if you're thinking, I don't want to live my life backwards, in addition to asking someone, we can also know that we live in a place of backward living and backward thinking when we get stuck in the why. That's another sign. Grumbling rejects gratitude and asks why. Why me? Or why, why not me? Why didn't I get this? Why didn't I get that? Why, why was I passed over? Why? If we allow ourselves to reflect on our grumble, an, inquent, an unquenchable emptiness can form within the why questions. This why is birthed from a place of discontent, and the discontent births from a posture of ingratitude. Maybe you even invited... Let me ask you this. Have you had a personal pity party lately? Maybe you had a little personal pity party and you invited some friends along. And they joined in in your little personal pity party. Because it doesn't take someone having a pity party long to gather a few others to join in in this said pity party. And then pity all, right? Because everybody starts, everybody starts complaining about this or that or talking about this or that or that person said that or that person did that or they didn't do that or I didn't get this or I didn't get that. We choose to remain in the thought process that says this is not enough. This, is not, I, this isn't what I want. Well, you know what? Maybe what you want isn't what God wants for you. And that's actually the, good, that's actually the best thing. But we have a hard time with that. This grumbling, I don't want manna, I want, you fill in the blank. I don't want manna, I want something else. I, I don't, I'm tired of quail. I'm tired of this. Is, ask yourself, is there a sense of discontentment in your soul? Do you find yourself stuck in the Why? Please, 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 please closely examine your thoughts your attitudes and your words. Ask yourself, where do I grumble? Am I complaining a lot? Do I look at my life and say, this is not enough? Or am I living in a state of, I want, I wish, I wish I had, I want, I miss? Do I look at others' lives longingly and wish I had their experience, their possessions, their spouse, their children, their house, their job, their friends? Or am I working at being content in what I have right now and what God has given me? Last week, someone sent me a message. It came on my phone. It said there was a gift waiting for me in my box. It wasn't here. It was somewhere else. There's a gift waiting for you in your box. It's a $5 coupon. And, and um, I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to throw this place under the bus. But, you know... 
it's a place that, that sometimes there's lots of negativity about it. We, we kind of whine and complain about how things are done and how decisions are made and that sort of thing. And, and it would have been very easy, easy for me. In fact, I, when I got the message, I kind of chuckled, $5. Oh, how big of you. Right? That's where I, and then the Holy Spirit swooped in and said, didn't the pastor just a couple days ago talk about gratitude? I often find myself referring to myself in the third person. And you know what I did? I said, you know what? Thank you. Five dollars is five dollars. Thank you for thinking of me, actually. Thank you for thinking of us. Yeah, it's a token, right? But, but if you were walking... Up, be honest, if you were walking down the street and you found $5 on the ground, would you pick it up and kind of be, oh, cool, I'm kind of lucky, I found $5, right? Almost a gallon of diesel fuel. <laughs> now, granted, $5 doesn't go as far today as it did two years ago, but $5 is $5, and you know what? I said, I'm going to be grateful for this. And, and I made a point in several conversations to tell people in that same organization, you know what, I'm grateful for this. I, it's, it's nice that they thought of us. Um, and my attitude changed a bit. It really did. I smiled about it, not chuckled about it. I smiled about it. Um, You see, these grumbles that take the form of questions, murmurs under our breath, thoughts crossing our minds, often seep out into our conversations. And in actuality, what the Bible refers to as a spirit of ingratitude, and we can choose differently. We, we can choose differently. We can practice differently. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whining, complaining, grumbling, not being, being ingrateful, those, that doesn't fit there. And when we feel ourselves headed in that direction and we, we feel the pull of, of wanting to, to, to let ourselves be pulled into this ungrateful spirit and this whining and this complaining, we need to go to Philippians 4.8 and we, said, we need to say, nope, I'm going to think about whatever is good. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, excellent. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm not minimizing the difficulty of this. It is hard, but it is something that we can and need to work at. So a grumb if, if a grumbling heart is the antithesis of a grateful heart, how do we then cultivate and grow in the habits of, of, of gratitude? And that's number four in your notes, cultivate a lifestyle of gratitude. You know, thankfully, grumbling doesn't have the final say. God's grace surpasses the grumble. His, he's gracious to forgive. If, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, I'm just such a negative person, you know, 
Amen to the self-evaluation, but you, what you need to do with that information and that recognition is you need to begin surrendering that to God and allowing him to mold and shape your heart, though it will not be fun, it will be the best and it will develop you into a person of character. The, the answer to our ingratitude does not require a, a movement of mountains, but a pushing of the needle. So ask yourself, how can I move the needle forward in my life this week? What actions can I take this week that would be actions of gratitude? Someone last week told me that they had a notebook that they write, these, they write three things in every day that they're grateful for. First of all, I wish I had that kind of discipline to every day write in a notebook three things that I'm grateful for. But, but um, they said that it's, it, it, it's out of the challenge of, I mean, their goal is to get to 10,000 reasons. Now, you can do the math. It'll be years. But isn't that a great exercise? Maybe you can start journaling things that you're grateful for. Maybe that fits you. Um, if you feel stuck in the why, you probably need to release something to the Lord. You need to let something go. You need to surrender something to him. Let go of a grudge or things, things you have against someone. Man, some of the most destructive things that we can wield to another person is the memory of things that that person has done to us. It doesn't, it doesn't move the needle forward to bring up that stuff and bring up that stuff and bring up that stuff. We need to let it go. We can't earn our way into the kingdom of God either. God's love is unconditional and we need to remember that. But once we have been adopted into the kingdom of God, we can then live in a kingdom of grace. And, and may the kingdom that we live in and the relationship that we have, may they be filled with grace. May we live in that grace every day. May we extend that grace to others every day. Let, and, and let's trust Jesus to provide and be grateful for all that we have, not focusing on what we don't. Because that's what the world wants us to do. That's what the enemy wants us to do. Practicing gratitude, accepting and expressing his grace can begin right now. The worship team would come up here. We'll sing this last song together. So yesterday, I, I was sort of... I watched a lot of sports yesterday and kept tabs of a lot of games yesterday. And, and uh, I was having a conversation with somebody and they texted me a list of all the teams that they were cheering for and every team lost yesterday. Now, this person, just like me, hates to lose. I don't like to lose. I don't like my teams to lose. I especially don't like my teams to lose like my one team did last night. But here's the thing, I'm watching the Cowboys play and, and it was a struggle and, and I, just, I just kept thinking they're going to get over the hump, they're going to get over the hump, now we're ahead, we're going to win, oh no, here we go again. And in the midst of that, I'm looking through some files on my computer and I notice that, uh, you know, another person that I share these files with had deleted a bunch of files thinking that they were only deleted on their computer and they were gone from mine. These files included the entire folder of the Ecclesiastes series. 
the entire folder of the series we just concluded, Shocking Claims of Jesus. Sermon notes, study notes, manuscripts, graphics, gone from my computer. I was sick, and so was this other person. I'm like, dude, you did like, oh, I didn't think I was. I... So for about 20 minutes, I thought, I mean, my whole world is upside down. All of that work. And then I found them. They weren't on my computer. They weren't on his computer. But somehow they were still on the cloud. And I went from worrying how the Cowboys were going to do in that game to being grateful and thank you, thankful that all of this work was saved. You know what that did? It added a little perspective to a game or multiple games. And there are much greater things to give us perspective than just the loss of some work, right? Our salvation in Jesus Christ, the number one, the greatest gift that we've ever received. Man, are we practicing gratitude for that? And then that feeds into other things and other things and other things. And God will change our hearts and he will change our minds and and he will mold us and he will make us into a person that other people want to be around. Now you may not admit that that's where you are you need help you need a friend you need a somebody that's close to you to you need to give them the right to speak truth into your life that's hard to do but man when we do and we grow and our faith increases and things don't stress us out as much and we don't have as much anxiety because we know that god god's got this I don't know what it's going to look like, but he's got this. We can trust him. Let's worship him. He, he's a good, good father. He is so good. And I know some are like, oh, this is such a repetitive song. It is. But we need to repeat, we need to repeat this truth to ourselves as we close our service this morning. Let's stand up. And let's sing about our good, good father. Hmm? I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard.